Well, you've turned in your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. And these brothers have come forward with Bibles in hand so that if you need a copy of Scripture, just get their attention as they make their way back. And they'll get a copy to you so you can follow along. And those Bibles are marked for you at 1 Kings 18. Some of you may remember the old game show called To Tell the Truth. The game would have three contestants, and each of those contestants claimed to be the same obscure, unknown person. The three would stand at the beginning of the show, and the announcer would say, Contestant number one, please give us your name. And he or she would say, My name is John Smith or Sally Smith or Paul Jones or Paula Jones, whatever the name of the person being spotlighted was. Then contestant number two would give his or her name the same way. My name is John Smith or Sally Smith or whatever. And the contestant three would do likewise. And after they all claimed to be the same person, the announcer would read a detailed biography of the individual in question. And then for several minutes, a panel of four would ask them questions to find out who's the real John Smith or Sally Smith. At the end of the questioning, the panelists would vote on who they think is the real one, and then the moment of truth would come. As the announcer said, will the real John Smith please stand up? And then the three contestants would look at each other, one would start to stand up, then sit back down, and after several seconds, the real John Smith identified himself. The other two were asked to give their real names and line of work, and they were given money based on how many panelists they fooled. I bring that up because today in 1 Kings 18, we have an episode that could be titled, Will the Real God Please Stand Up? Two weeks ago, we saw from 1 Kings 17 that God had pronounced through His prophet Elijah that there would be a curse on the land, saying there will be no rain until God lifts the curse, because the people of Israel, who had been led by their wicked king Ahab, had begun to worship and serve another god called Baal. And as we come to chapter 18, here's how it begins. Notice verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now, going three years with no dew and no rain would really produce some bad press for the god Baal. And the reason is this. Baal was a fertility god. His specialty was to produce, to produce offspring, to produce vegetation, fertilizing human eggs and the earth's soil. But Baal has been impotent for three years now. And now the true and living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the real and only fertility God, is going to do what Baal cannot, send rain. But he's not going to just have it start raining. Now why? Why doesn't God just determine I'm going to end it, time enough, and it starts raining? Well, if he did that, what do you think the worshipers of Baal would do? They'd start calling him the comeback kid. You know, he's had a momentary lapse. He's recovered. Now he's restored. And so instead of just sending the rain, Yahweh is going to clearly and publicly and obviously and decisively show Baal to be what he is, 
an imposter. The real God is going to stand up. In fact, that's the theme of the entire chapter of chapter 18. Who's the real God? Verse 21, notice what it says. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. Or verse 24, you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Verse 36, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God. Verse 37, answer me, Lord, excuse me, so these people will know that you are God. And then in verse 39, when all the people saw, that is, the result of this great contest, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, as we then look at this contest between Yahweh, the name, the personal name of the true and living God, Yahweh meaning I am, He first gave that name when He spoke with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, who shall I say sent me to Pharaoh? And he said, tell him, I am has sent you, Yahweh, the self-existent one. It's the name of the true and living God, and this contest is between him and Baal, the false god. And as we look at that, you may understandably think to yourself, well, I can sit this one out, take a nap during the message, check how I'm doing on my March Madness bracket, not so good for me, that's what I get for picking Ohio State to win a game. (laughs) As we look at this, frankly, weird contest between Yahweh and Baal, you may think it does not apply to you because you don't have a shrine to Baal. You may not have known who Baal was until just a couple of weeks ago. But I want to encourage you, friends, to stay with it, and I want to encourage you to do that for two reasons. In this chapter, God makes some important things known about himself. And this God is the one we all need to know and to know better every day. Secondly, although you don't have a Baal shrine set up in your basement, presumably, you and I, all of us, are tempted to the worship of idols. Even without a temple, without an altar, or a priest to represent it. That's why the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 14, that men have set up idols in their hearts. You see, our hearts are veritable idol factories. And we can make an idol of anyone or anything. And so this contest goes on within us and around us all the time. Who is the real God? Will the real God stand up? And so let's pray and ask God to help us as we see both Him and ourselves clearly this morning. Father, we thank you that we're able to come to this sacred time on your calendar. We each have a divine appointment to be here, to look into your word and to there see your character, to see ourselves as well, to see the gap between who you are and what we are to become. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts, attentive minds, so that changes can be made inside of us that will be evident outside of us as we serve you this coming week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, why would anyone worship and serve Baal in the first place? What was it that made Baal desirable? 
And he must have been desirable because Israel had been lured to him many times, going back even hundreds of years before this encounter between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah. The book of Judges tells us this, and this is hundreds of years before. The Israelites provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal. Now, in Elijah's time, it had something more than just whatever lure it had back then. By Elijah's time, it had the seal of approval of the king and his wife Jezebel. If you were with us two weeks ago, you remember that Jezebel was really an evangelist for Baal worship. And so if you wanted to be in, and you wanted to look like that you're in step with the movers and shakers, then of course you worship Baal. You know, friends, that power and the consensus that it often develops is persuasive. I mean, we hear things like every credible scientist believes the world came into being through a massive explosion billions of years ago. And so only a member of the Flat Earth Society would think otherwise, and that can be very persuasive. You can be drawn, you can be lured into that. And so there was the, the power of royalty, and then the consensus that developed around that power that lured God's people into the worship of Baal. But the other allure of Baalism was that he produced stuff that people needed, at least supposedly. He bestowed material things like grain and oil and wine. He could revive the dead, heal the sick, and grant the blessing of fertility. You say, well, we don't have anybody who thinks that today. Who would worship a God because He gives us stuff? Have you all ever heard of the prosperity gospel? It's rampant, rampant in America. Joel Osteen is its most infamous representative. But there are plenty of other Joel Osteens out there telling you that God wants you healthy and wealthy. And if you simply do the right things, then God will bestow these things on you. It's Baalism. So I say in the outline that's inserted in your program this. Please take a look at that. I say in point number one, our God is supreme. But it really could simply be a statement of fact that says God is supreme. Because you see, friends, whoever is God is by definition supreme. That's why we refer to a supreme what? A supreme being. There can be only one supreme being, just as there can be only one supreme court, the final court of appeal. And that's why Elijah says this in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. And so I say in your outline, our God is supreme over a number of things. The first of those is this, all rivals. Our God is supreme over all rivals. Now, what are the rivals of God today? Well, there are the religious rivals, Islam and Allah being one of the most prominent and fierce. But it would be a mistake for us to define God's rivals as only those that are obviously religious, with all the religious trappings of a sacred book and holy places and belief in the supernatural. Did you know that today some of the most vocal religious people are atheists? You say, how can an atheist be religious? Because he believes in a supreme being, namely himself. 
In fact, our own Supreme Court has ruled that you can be granted conscientious objector status. Did you know that? To not serve in the military, even if you are an atheist, if, it, if that belief is equivalent to that of a supreme being. And they have recognized, at least in that instance, our Supreme Court, rightly, the truth that everyone is a theologian. It's just a matter of who your God is. That's why the Bible says famously in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, when the Bible uses, many of you have heard me explain before, when the Bible uses the term fool, it's not the same as ignorant. Ignorant means I just don't know. But foolishness and the fool is someone who fails to appropriate what they do know. And God has given evidence of himself to everyone, and therefore it is only the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. In fact, there really is no such thing as a real philosophical atheist. Atheists claim, I don't believe in God. But God declares, I don't believe in atheists. There are no such things, really. Deep down in their heart, they know there's a God, but suppress that truth, a la Romans 1. The American Humanist Association, devoted to, to atheism, its motto is good without God. And their Bible is something called the Humanist Manifesto, and there have been three versions of that, 1933, then the second Humanist Manifesto in 1973, and then a third in 2003. Just to give you an idea of the claims of the Humanist Association, Manifesto 2 says this, we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. While there's much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are, are or will become. They say this, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. They go on to say, promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. Modern science discredits such historic concepts as the, quote, ghost in the machine or the, quote, separable soul. Rather, science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. Now, friends, that's a religious statement, a rival religion to Christianity, but without God. And as an aside, this is why the Supreme Court's approach to separation of church and state is so misguided, and it has been for decades. You see, what our Supreme Court does, in effect, is determine whether or not something can be used in the public square based upon whether or not it fits a list of criteria. Is there a sacred book, a supreme being that's believed in, prayer, all of the traditional religious trappings that go with it, but of course, it fails to take into account the religious nature of secularism. And then by default, we leave in place another religion. And we are feeling the effects of that in our culture after decades of bringing our young people to worship at the shrine of another religion. But notice as well, according to verse 21, in Elijah's statement, if if Yahweh is God, if the Lord is God, worship Him. If Baal is God, worship Him. Notice that implicit in that is you cannot follow two gods. If there are two gods, then neither is really God. And that's why Jesus said in the New Testament, you cannot serve two masters. Elijah's statement assumes, in the words of one commentator, that theology, that is belief, results in discipleship, that is behavior. 
Our behavior is determined by our belief and inevitably follows from that. And so here, Elijah says in verse 21, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The New Testament word disciple refers to a follower. And in fact, the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, the terms believer and disciple or follower are used synonymously. And so here Elijah is saying, of course, very correctly, that if he really is God, then you're to be his disciple. You are to follow him. And if these rival gods are indeed God, then you're to follow them. But did you know we live in a day when salvation has been severed from discipleship? Rather than Elijah's, if he is God, then of course you follow him. We think we can say, he's God, and I might get around to following him. Evangelical churches have been plagued with a false teaching that separates salvation and discipleship, that is, following Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, that's, that's incredible. No one could really teach that. Believe me, it's not only taught, it's written about, it's preached. And the idea is that you can have Jesus as your Savior. You can have him as, in effect, your ticket to heaven as fire insurance against hell. But you do not need to follow him as Lord. They separate him as Savior and Lord. Lord might come later as an act of giving yourself to God. The Bible teaches when you come to Christ, he is your Savior and you bow before him as your Lord. You remember that Jesus said, come what? Come, follow me. Why follow me? Because I'm God. And if I'm God, and you follow me. Friends, if you say you believe in Jesus, it follows inevitably that you follow him. If Yahweh is God, if Jesus is God, then follow him. But I want you to do an experiment that I did for myself as I was preparing for this. Well, if that's true, if it's true that behavior follows on belief, if it's true that theology leads to, to discipleship of one sort or another, then I need to examine, you need to examine who it is that is really our functional God. If Yahweh is God, we follow Him. If Jesus is God, we follow Him. But if someone else or something else is God, we follow them or it, right? So fill in the name of your would-be God. In fact, fill in your own name, just as an experiment. I did this for myself. If Ken is God, then I'll follow what Ken wants. If Ken is God, then what I have and I own, I can use at my own discretion. If Ken is God, then my relationships are for me and I can use them as I see fit and pursue them the way I want. If Ken is God, I don't need to seek first the kingdom of Jesus, but rather the kingdom of Ken. If Ken is God, I don't need to spend what I have on his cause because, after all, I deserve it. If Ken is God, I don't need to ask forgiveness. I don't need to confess. I don't need to repent. If Ken is God, I can and should choose my comfort over Christ's cause. If Ken is God, I can and should choose self-indulgence, whether money, sex, power, or all of them. If Ken is God, then all my rhetorical powers can and should be used to rationalize rather than repent. This list could go on infinitely. 
But just in that short list, if we're honest with ourselves, you heard yourself in at least some of those. And to the extent that's true of me or true of you, it is to that extent that he is not God. Do you hear that? Because if if Christ is God, then follow him. But then conversely, if I'm not following him, then what am I saying? He's not God. Do you see, friends, this is why we get so worked up, and should, all of us, about sin. Because sin is saying something very profound. It's saying you're not God. You're not worthy of being obeyed. You're not worthy of being followed. Our God is supreme over all rivals, religious, secular, or our self-created rivals. Secondly, in your outline, our God is supreme over all places. Verse 19 says that this contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah took place on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's located near the modern city of Haifa. We may get opportunity to see it in April of 2015 when we go on our Holy Land tour. That's been listed in your program for the last few weeks that we're going to have that for 10 days in 2015. Tonight and next week at our servant seminars, there'll be a 15 to 20 minute presentation about the Holy Land tour. So if you come to either of those, you'll get an opportunity to get more information about that. But Carmel juts out into the Mediterranean. It's near Haifa. And in Egyptian records from the second millennium B.C., Mount Carmel is called, quote, Holy Head, suggesting it was a sanctuary. And in the annals of an Assyrian king, Mount Carmel is said to be Baal's place. And so Elijah undoubtedly chose this place on purpose in order to have this contest with the prophets of Baal to show that our God is not only supreme over all rivals like Baal, but He's also supreme over all places. God defeats His rivals on their home turf, where they might think they have, as it were, home court advantage. But God defeats them. You guys ever heard a notion called uh, territorial demons? Anybody ever heard that? Well, if you have... Forget it, okay? And it is true, the Bible teaches, that there are principalities and there are powers and there are demonic forces. The book of Daniel speaks of uh, the angel Michael doing battle against what's called the, the king of Persia. And as you look at the context of that, it appears it's some spiritual force that is seeking to battle uh, for the hearts and minds located in a particular place. That all goes on. The Bible teaches that. But, but you and I are not to concern ourselves with what Satan is up to. Our number one concern is not what Satan is doing. It's what our God is doing and can do. Because our God gives no quarter to anyone, any of his enemies. And our God is supreme over every place, every inch that he has created on this earth, belongs to Him, and He is supreme over it. If we will give our allegiance and our attention and our obedience to Him, our God defeats 
all of his enemies, wherever they are. Our God is supreme over all rivals. And over all places, thirdly in your outline. And over all people. Verse 22, Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So this is what the press would be saying at the time of this, this contest. They'd be touting Yahweh's plummeting approval ratings. It's down to one guy. Baal has 450 prophets. And of course, that in turn will cause people to want to, to follow the, the consensus. But our God doesn't care about the numbers. The numbers do not matter to the true and living God. Those who are followers of the true and living God are always, do you hear this, friends? They are always a minority. God's power does not depend on the number of cheerleaders that he has. If we'll get that right, then we will lose the idea that we need to do everything we can do to be popular with the culture. God is not dependent upon cheerleaders. God is always a majority, always. And so our God's supreme over his rivals, over every place, over all people. And then I say fourthly, over all pretense. And I say pretense because verse 25 says this, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they bought that. Verse 28, they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, when he taunts them, and he says to them that perhaps he's gone or he's, or he's sleeping, one of the phrases that is used actually refers to maybe he's using the facilities. No kidding. But this such is the confidence of Elijah in the true and living God and his confidence that Baal and all other rivals are false and thus impotent. You say, now who would, who would do that? Who would have this kind of pretense that by our shouting and our crying out that we can somehow move God? Oh, dear friends, the religious world is full of it. It's full of that kind of thing. Even professing Christianity is full of that kind of thing. That God is somehow going to be swayed by us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus didn't then say, well, then don't pray. In fact, pray, but pray rightly. With the right view of God, this then is how you should pray. And then he begins to give the famous disciples model prayer. 
Our God is supreme over all our pretense. And the idea that I can do enough things, say enough things to merit God's favor somehow. If I sacrifice enough, then God is obligated to do things for me. I hope that no one here has such a false notion. What our God does for us, He does because of His grace and out of His merciful heart. And then fifthly, our God is supreme over all rivals and places and people and pretense, and He is supreme over all situations. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Now let me, let me stop there. This nation that is currently presided over by King Ahab is, is called Israel. But it's only comprised of 10 tribes, not 12. Two of the tribes have have split off and become the southern kingdom called Judah. And this is an implicit indictment then of this splintering of God's people, 12 tribes that were to be one people before God and one nation called Israel. And that's why now Elijah assembles these, these 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes. Verse 32 With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold 20 says. That's about 25 pounds of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. So I'm preparing an altar to burn, offer a burnt offering, sacrifice. But before I do that, put water on it. Let's make it harder. All right, whatever you say, boss. Water it is. Verse 34. They do that, do it again. And they did it again. And then, middle of verse 34, do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And dear friends, I want you to see the stark contrast between what Elijah does and what the prophets of Baal did. They're dancing around, they're cutting themselves, they're doing all kinds of things to try to cajole and convince their God. And Elijah speaks to the true and living God. And he simply says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that is Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. There's the situation. And Elijah purposely made it a difficult, yea, impossible situation for anyone except God. Our God is supreme over all situations. So what about your situation? Can he handle yours? Is your situation impossible? Do you have to take matters into your own hands and help God out? 
The answer should be obvious, should it not? There's nothing impossible for our God. He is supreme over all situations, including yours and mine. I'm reminded of Abraham and Sarah. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah, you will have a child. They became advanced in years, you remember. She didn't actually have Isaac until she was 90 years old. And here's what Genesis 18 tells us. The Lord had said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? And this is God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. You see, friends, that these stories, these true stories of God's power are given to us so that in our situations there is never a time where we say, this can't be done. This marriage can't be fixed. This child can't be saved. These bills can't be paid. There is nothing that's impossible with our God because He is supreme over all situations. Our God is supreme over all of those things. I want you to notice secondly in your outline, our God is supreme in a couple of things. He is supreme, first of all, in His grace. This fire came from heaven at the request of Yahweh's servant Elijah. But this had happened before. In fact, it had happened several times before in the history of Israel. It happened once when Aaron and his sons pronounced the benediction at the first service in the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle was this mobile worship center that God had given for His people as they wandered in the wilderness. And at the benediction of that first service in the tabernacle, Aaron and his sons had given. This is what the Bible tells us in Leviticus 9. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. Now the point of that was this, that God was signaling His acceptance and validation of the sacrifice that had been given. And then the same phenomenon happened again later. During a difficult period, King David offered sacrifice. The Bible tells us David called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And as a result of that, David declared the very spot where that occurred to be the location for the future temple that would be built. He said, in 1 Chronicles 22, the house of the Lord God is to be here. And then later, when his son Solomon actually built the temple, at the dedication of the temple, the Bible says, when Solomon finished praying, notice fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The fire indicates that God accepted Elijah's sacrifice. And in verse 39, what he is telling his people is quite profound. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And by the fire coming down and showing God's acceptance and validation of the sacrifice, God is saying to His people, This is the way home. This is the way back. You have wandered from me, but the way home is through the altar and the sacrifice. This is your hope. 
God is saying to them, you have an altar, you have a place of atonement where I will receive you. Does anybody know of a place of an altar and of atonement where our God has promised to receive us? We just finished this building a few weeks ago. This is just our fourth meeting in our building. The furniture in here is simple and picked on purpose. But you notice there's no altar here. Sometimes we say, you know, if somebody gets stood up on a wedding, they were left standing at the, at the altar, right? But nobody will be left standing at the altar here because there ain't one, okay? <laughs> but see, there's a really profound reason there's no altar here. Because an altar is a place of sacrifice. And God has given his approval on the final, complete sacrifice of Jesus. There's a cross behind me on purpose to signify that. And the cross is the way back. The cross is the way home. The cross is the place of God's mercy and God's grace to us as we wander and as we sang today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The cross is the way home. God is supreme in his grace. And he's supreme lastly in your outline in his judgment. Verse 40 tells us that the prophets of Baal were all judged severely. They were all slaughtered. The wages of sin is what? We look at those prophets of Baal and we say, well, you know, they they probably had it coming to them. (laughs) But here's the thing. Biblically, I've got it coming to me. And you've got it coming to you. But thanks be to God, there is the cross. The cross is the place of God's grace. For those who come to Jesus, the cross is the place of God's judgment as well. This judgment, rather than being then poured out on you, and the death then that I deserve and you deserve, it is poured out on Jesus in his death on our behalf. And in that death, he did infinitely more than happened through Elijah at Mount Carmel. You remember a few weeks ago? Okay, none of you will remember a few weeks ago that I said this. But I said that God humbles his servants, but he often humiliates his enemies. He humiliated his enemies at Mount Carmel. And Jesus on the cross not only took the judgment that we deserved, he also humiliated the enemies of God there. That's why Colossians chapter 2 says this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So friends... Mount Carmel is calling us back to Mount Calvary and to the cross of Jesus. And the reason that God gives us this and the reason God makes this call to us then on March 23rd, 2014 is for the same reason that he has done with his people throughout history. I showed you earlier from Ezekiel chapter 14 that God says these these men have set up idols in their hearts. They have wandered from me. But then that same chapter, Ezekiel 14 and verse 5 says this, I will recapture the hearts of the people who have deserted me for their idols. 
And God is calling you and me and us continually back to himself through the cross of Jesus. I say as your take-home truth, we must acknowledge God as God in all our circumstances. And to the extent that he is not God in any place of your life, that you are not following him in obedience, you are saying then, you are really not God of this place or of this portion. But the cross is calling us back. And for some of you, as we bow and pray in just a moment, God is calling you to the cross for the first time. Calling you to the cross for a relationship with him, for initial salvation. And if that's the case with you, if you came into this room and you didn't have a relationship with God, or you're not sure how to have a relationship with God, it is at the place of the cross. And so this is what you need to do. You need to realize that you are a sinner. You're a sinner like those prophets of Baal, like I am. Recognize Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins by his death, a death you deserve, that I deserve. Repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life, and here's how you do that. You pray in your own words to God when we bow in just a moment from your heart to him. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm chasing my own gods. I recognize in many ways I've become my own God. I have dethroned you by my sin. I want to follow you with my life. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Because, Lord, we know it is done for a good purpose. You chide us to change us. You convict us in order to correct us. So thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in our despair. You point us always to the answer. And the answer is always the cross of Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for these stories, even in the Old Testament, even centuries before, that point us to the need for an ultimate sacrifice that can take away sin. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has done that, who alone could do that. And so, Lord, we thank you that therefore we can come and if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray for any who came into this room without a relationship with you and not knowing how to have that relationship, that they have heard the good news that they can have an eternal relationship with you because you have done what they cannot do. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to draw them out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. Move their hearts toward the Savior that we all at one time shun. Lord, help us who name your name to live as though you are God every moment of every day. If Jesus is God, then Lord God, we want to follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.